welcome to the Changing Healthcare Podcast, where we talk about moving healthcare forward through the strategic application of technology, not through disruption, but through empowerment. I'm Miles David Romney, CTO, co-founder, and on-staff futurist at eVisit, the sole leader in the virtual care space, according to Forrester Research. And as usual, I'm joined by my friend and partner, CEO and co-founder at eVisit, Brett Larson. Hi, Brett. Hey, Miles. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thanks. Good. Well, we've got some good stuff today. It's been a hot week in the news, I think uh, largely owing to the ATA conference wrapping up uh, last week and some associated announcements that uh, came from Senator Brian Schatz and HHS Secretary uh, Javier Becerra. The first one, I know, I know that uh, you've seen this stack as well. Just kind of summarize the first that comes from Politico. Virtual care becomes a common cause in a divided Congress. Congress appears poised to let millions of Medicare recipients continue video chat with their doctors after the pandemic is over. A Senate plan, Connect for Health, sponsored by Brian Schatz, would permanently enshrine many of the Trump era coverage and many payment rules and has attracted 59 co-sponsors. Senator Schatz is uh, very good with his sound bites. Here's the first of those. We've gone from the point where if I talked about telehealth to someone, their eyes would start to glaze over. Now, when I start to talk about telehealth, their heads nod vigorously up and down. I think you and I both experienced uh, experienced that at, at various social events pre-pandemic when people ask what you do and you start to go into it and they quickly find someone else to speak to at said social event. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from that, one of the things that, that I've noticed, the skeptics of telehealth, I think, are expressing concern or I've heard concern expressed that it's going to drive a surge in healthcare spending, uh, specifically a financial burden to payers and an increase in fraudulent billing. What's your take on that, Miles? You know, it's interesting because this is not a new allegation. This has been bouncing around for several years now and traditionally has been based upon uh, fraud estimates that were pretty disingenuous in my mind. Uh, in that, they weren't looking at true fraud. They were actually looking at what could be considered overuse of telehealth, only in that telehealth was being used in the place of, uh, of on-site in-clinic care. But it was being used in many cases legitimately for people who, uh, first off, were spending less money by uh, receiving the care over telehealth rather than in-clinic. And also uh, people who were in rural areas who couldn't uh, well access the care any other way. So when we see estimates like this latest uh, from the Office of Inspector General of $4.5 billion of telehealth-related fraud last year, that's something I'd, uh, I haven't had a chance to, but I'd like to really dive deeper into that and find out if we're really looking at fraud there or if they're just defining fraud as people using telehealth more broadly uh, and uh, adopting it more quickly than they are comfortable with. Uh, so I'm, I am a skeptic. I'm a big skeptic when it comes to allegations of, of telehealth fraud. However, we have, all of us have seen during the pandemic, we've seen that uh, with the relaxation of, uh, of many security and privacy restrictions in order to facilitate a wide and very quick adoption for telehealth for the pandemic, we have seen even large hospital systems starting to use, just kind of use whatever they get their hands on. Sometimes that was FaceTime, sometimes it was Zoom, sometimes it was GoToMeeting or other conferencing solutions that, that really weren't intended to provide any kind of a clinical workflow. And in that case, we have seen that those organizations have really been scrambling to find ways to document their visits for billing and, and audit purposes. And in some cases, they've been doing crazy, unsecure things like asking their providers to take screenshots of the encounters, which then just get stored on their desktop for weeks, however long it takes IT to come around and scrape those off and put them into some kind of a repository. 
this is an area where we see a, a big difference between traditional conferencing solutions and real virtual clinics. Virtual clinics are designed to log all of this information and provide uh, audit reports so that you can even more effectively than care that's provided in clinic prove that a patient was talking to a provider for X number of minutes. And uh, the notes that go along with that, you can look at the timestamps of when they were edited and when they were signed and do things like take audio recordings or, or selective automated screenshots that get stored automatically. All of these things we can do already. They, they exist in, in the industry. The in-clinic uh, ability to, to document patient activities really doesn't, uh, doesn't live up to that. So there's so much that can be done to, uh, to, to avoid fraud. Uh, but it, it does come down in a lot of ways in my mind to what is reimbursable. Uh, what those what those rules are, what they have been, what they're evolving to become, and whether people are using or coding visits properly, submitting them for payment according to their uh, contracts. And if they do that incorrectly, or if they are providing a service, uh, even if it was a successful service, and even if the reimbursement is lower than it would be for in-clinic care and it was carried out via telehealth, if they don't code it properly, it's going to get thrown into a bucket of telehealth fraud, even though the positive intent was there and positive outcomes were there. I would, I'd say the, the benefits far outweigh the risks. And I, I think if you look at, at just fraud in healthcare in general, even if that four and a half billion dollar number is correct, I think it's dwarfed by the actual fraud, you know, that's occurring. Um, yeah. the, the, it's, it's just, I think it actually stands to reduce fraud overall because the paper trail and the mechanism of actually tracking whether or not an encounter occurred and, and being able to, when done correctly, being able to track the, the downstream effects and outcomes of, of care uh, delivered and received, I think, the, I think the benefits far outweigh the risks of the concerns they're expressing. I uh, remember when I was living in Los Angeles, I, I'm married to uh, a, a, an actor and music director, and uh, she was doing a lot of work for a, a theater in, in Los Angeles, and they were right next to a, a, a medical supply company. And we're talking probably 10 times a month, they would get letters that were meant to have been delivered to the neighbor, the medical device company. And uh, they were Medi uh, Medicaid checks made out to different people, every one of them. And uh, at one point, someone from the theater went over and tried to actually buy something from the medical device company and, uh, and uh, they were denied. And there was dust on top of everything. So it became pretty clear that, in fact, it was just a front for fraud. So fraud is something that has to be dealt with wherever it's found in healthcare. Yeah. So certainly the, the idea that fraud might be found in telehealth is no reason not to move it forward. Certainly a reason to move it forward carefully and responsibly using tools that are made for it and made to be able to document it properly. But not, in my mind, should stand in the way of adoption. Yeah, if anything, I think the legislation needs to address doing it, doing telehealth the right way. And again, you know, this will start, will start to sound like a broken record. Today, we call it telehealth. Tomorrow, it's just health. Uh, the mechanism by which care is delivered won't really matter, and we won't differentiate how, but more focus on the what and the outcomes of that. That's right. In fact, if we skip down to uh, the, the third article in our stack from Health IT News, it's entitled, Could Telehealth Worsen Inequality? Not Under My Watch, says HHS Secretary Becerra. There's, uh, again, a great soundbite from Senator Schatz. He says, 10 years ago, if you told someone to interact with their clinician via iPhone, it would have been an insult. Now, if you can't do that, that's the insult. You and I both got into healthcare to solve the world's second biggest problem, which is the high cost and spotty availability of healthcare. And Secretary Becerra speaks directly to that. Here again, these were marks uh, following the ATA. He said, COVID-19 showed us where the holes are in our public health system. 
That's what happens when you have the most technologically advanced healthcare in the world, but it's not evenly distributed. And as a result, we had pockets in America where COVID was devastating. And technology helps us close those gaps faster. But once again, we want to make sure that technology is our friend and technology is being used properly. So accountability will be so important. He's singing our song right there. It really, I mean, it speaks to the shift that the market is making towards hybrid care. Telehealth generally should be used as part of a larger strategy to drive improved patient outcomes. And I think what the pandemic has accelerated is the implementation of the right technologies. I'll say right in air quotes, but finding how to connect the patient experience. Before, I think most patient experiences, I know mine have been rather disconnected, regardless of whether or not I'm receiving care in the same health system as I as I was, you know, five years ago. The clinical team, their ability to access those records just isn't isn't comprehensive and cohesive. And so I think I think if these advancements bring more clarity to the clinical side, but the ability to really wrap an entire digital experience around a patient who I think more and more we're referring to as a consumer to provide insight and direction and uh, support both to the consumer and to the clinical team to deliver on on the triple aim. When done correctly, I think we'll find the pandemic brought healthcare forward, you know, one or two decades uh, to where it should be because the technologies we're using in other businesses to, to drive growth and margin and and sustainability are, are finally making its way into care. We, of course, never, we never want to minimize the, the tragedy of the pandemic and all of the lives lost through it. But at eVisit, we are also all about silver linings. And uh, this pandemic, certainly compared to past global pandemics, did let us off really light, uh, considering, for example, that uh, with over 500,000 dead uh, in the United States owing to the pandemic, those uh, under the age of 18 who are dead are under 500. This in itself is a just a spectacular mercy compared to world pandemics of the past. So it, in my mind, this has, just as you said, it's, it, it has pushed healthcare and health tech forward by maybe a couple of decades and, and prepared us for what may come in the future. And with uh, we've got some some significant challenges uh, on the horizon. DIY biohacking. We've got labs all over the world who are, who are further experimenting with dangerous uh, pathogens. It is highly likely that we're going to see some kind of an emergency like this again, and that it could be much more dangerous, much more virulent. But now we know the process. We've built the process. We know what to do. We know how to, to quickly light a fire under the development of vaccines and how to distribute them and how not to distribute them and what the messaging needs to be and what it need, not needs to be and uh, what government responses should be and, and uh, shouldn't be. So, uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right there in that with full acknowledgement of the tragedy, this uh, the silver lining is that it really has pushed us forward in terms of what we're prepared for in the future. So you mentioned something interesting, how we talked about Senator Becerra saying the concerns that some have about the inequality of care, right, that this will increase that inequality. I, I personally uh, am with Secretary Becerra. I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to be the case. I actually think it it creates more equality, more access, regardless of where you, whether you're in a rural or urban situation or a, a suburb. Why do you think naysayers believe this? And what do you think additional, I mean, it's one thing to say, I don't believe it, but it's another thing to say, here's how we keep it from happening. What, what steps, what things do you think need to be put in place to make sure that it, that it doesn't, that it actually increases access and, and the equality of care? From, from my readings, it, 
in my interactions, it's clear to me that the number one issue on skeptics' minds is the availability of broad, broadband throughout the United States. But we have, what is, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but last I looked, it was uh, something on the order of 98% of, 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 of the country has access to broadband. Uh, there certainly are underserved communities that don't have that access. And uh, Senator Becerra addresses that. He says that as part of uh, responsibly rolling out telehealth uh, to the entire country, he says, we want to make sure that we don't leave anyone behind so that telehealth should be available to all Americans universally and then acknowledges that uh, infrastructure is a big part of that. If more and more healthcare services are going to be rolled out via telehealth remote care, then uh, then everyone really does need universal access to uh, to broadband. Now, that doesn't mean that the government is providing for free broadband into everybody's house, but it does mean that uh, whether it's in your house or a local Walgreens or a local library or something else, that you need to have access to broadband. Uh, fortunately, the, the permeation of mobile phones uh, seems to be nearly complete. Uh, I, I know that we at eVisit have found that uh, we don't have 100% of patients who have access to email addresses, but just about 100% of, of patients have access to a phone number and text messages because it's associated to their mobile phones, which then have increased access to broadband over 5G and even, even LTE. So the array of available technologies for delivering broadband has expanded significantly, and, and it shows. Apart from that, Skeptics also talk about cross-state licensure. I'm somewhat sympathetic to this because it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense that uh, if the licensure requirements are so similar, in many cases identical, why a physician who has been licensed in Utah couldn't be practicing in Idaho. I'm sympathetic to that. I, I don't happen to think that that's a problem that the federal government should be dealing with. It should be uh, states who are putting in place reciprocal uh, recognition of uh, of licensure, uh, similar to what's been done with concealed carry and the, a few other state level regulations uh, across the country, that that could certainly solve this problem. But in my mind, that that really is for the cases where Megan Martinez is from Utah and she goes off to go to school in New York, uh, and she wants to see her family doctor who's licensed in Utah. And so that family doctor has a potentially in the future, a, a reciprocal agreement between Utah and New York, and he can practice even though she's in New York. That's really the use case for cross-state licensure in my mind. Senator Becerra goes on to talk about the, the downside to cross-state licensure. And, and of course, you and I are right here uh, with him. He says, the farther away you go from the direct connection between patient and provider, the more difficult it will be to try to provide for the accountability quick and fairly for the patient. So he, he's concerned about a patient in uh, Utah getting connected via telehealth to a provider who's in a call center outside of Seattle or Chicago, a provider who has no access to that patient's health care, very little insight into patient's health future and no way to really integrate the findings of that episode with the patient's holistic long-term care and wellness. And of course, this is where hybrid care comes in and where telehealth companies who really are only about discrete episodic care and are not about completely virtual care, who aren't creating a hybrid workflow that allows for patients to come into a brick and mortar facility for some operations or uh, some procedures, some portions of their care and, uh, and conduct other portions of it remotely. Those are the ones who really are, they stand to bring patient outcomes down. Talk to me a little bit about your experience with that distinction. For me, it's, and, and we're seeing data now that supports this, but for me, there's always a something, we talked a little bit about the genesis of e-visit in the last episode, it came from a place, a belief that the most, the highest quality care is delivered 
from a clinician to patients they know and from and from a patient perspective clinicians who have context and sometimes that context is important at an individual level and sometimes it's important at a geographic level but when you think about connecting a patient to i, I believe the long-term effects of large provider networks that are geographically located in a call center in new york or texas or it doesn't really matter where we'll find that patients who interacted that way there, there are long-term effects to it, even though, even though they may have been low acuity, minor medical conditions. Um, when a patient needs to be referred on, there should be to their PCMH, right? Like a patient at a medical home mm -hmm. that, that knows them, that knows the context. The studies that have started to surface recently, specifically around like upper respiratory issues, and that the vast majority of interactions handled via telehealth through a, a payer offering ultimately have to be referred in to an in-clinic visit. I think the big disconnect today is that those payer member offerings staffed by, you know, physicians in another location don't have the geographic awareness to actually bring that patient care journey full circle. I think that's absolutely necessary. I think what needs to be happening is that local healthcare infrastructure needs to be empowered with the appropriate tools to provide the same access mechanisms to a higher quality care network. That just, uh, it reminded me of uh, experiences we've, we've had at eVisit, speaking to costs associated with telehealth and uh, how skeptics uh, will, will not only allege that fraud may be involved, but that uh, but the cost may go up because it's, uh, because it's easier to access care. It's, uh, it's certainly uh, an undemocratic argument. Uh, to say that uh, that that uh, the disadvantage here is that people are going to be accessing their healthcare more, which will be a, a disadvantage because it'll cost the systems more. First off, from a from a from an ethical standpoint, it's off. We want people to be able to access uh, in the easiest way the healthcare that that they contract for and they pay for and that, that's provided to them. But secondly, I'm skeptical of the claim uh, because at a visit we see it countless times as it happened. For example, I remember one. One uh, anecdote that a pediatrician shared with us, he said, I spoke with a mother over the weekend. She, uh, she was all ready to go to the emergency room. In fact, she was going to dash right out the door and go to the one that was closest to her house that was, uh, was out of network for her. And I got her over e-visit, and uh, she pointed her iPhone camera down her, her daughter's throat, and I was able to see that, no, this was not, in fact, a life-threatening emergency. Uh, I prescribed a medication that she could get at a 24-hour pharmacy and then asked her to come into my office on Monday. That cost her a total of $49 for that virtual encounter. And she saved around $3,000 from an unnecessary ED visit. That's the, the I won't say the magic, but, but the benefit. 67% of every interaction that walks through the front of an ED or urgent care setting could have and should have been handled in a primary care setting. The average fee around those ER and urgent care settings is $1,500. When you think about you know, the claim that telehealth is going to skyrocket healthcare costs, I, I, it's a fallacy. Um, and also, you know, we've, we've done studies with customers to show that if you think about the workflow that's required to facilitate a, an in-office visit and the number of individuals involved in that and the time and the facility and everything involved, the margin on like a per dollar, there's a dramatic margin difference in what it takes to transact a telehealth visit. Uh, because of the efficiencies that are gained and um, you know it's it's essentially the patient's self-serving through the intake process and the providers notified that they have the patient that needs care there's a lot of operational work that goes in behind 
the clinical care that that I think will prove extremely efficacious in in building a better business of healthcare. And when you consider everything that's possible with care navigation and risk assessment through telehealth, that means that providers can, can really start to operate at the top to, to practice at the top of their licenses, and they won't be bogged down in activities that could best be served up by AI and machine learning or others on their staff that are tied into the remote care workflows as well. This does mean that healthcare providers are going to have to start shifting the way that they code. Payers are going to have to start shifting their expectations. E&M codes that are time-based, for example, may uh, become a thing of the past. When there's so much information available via uh, questionnaires and smart questionnaires and uh, machine learning risk assessment to providers when they get right in with the patient. They really don't need to spend, in most cases, 15 minutes with a patient. Three or four minutes will do. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that as you start to talk through that. I started thinking about if I were running a health system, what are the things that I would need to be doing to prepare for this shift in my delivery model? As the CTO of a health system, Miles, what are the key areas you'd be looking at from an operational and, and structural perspective? to say, hey, we are shifting to hybrid care. You know, the, the vast majority of, of low acuity ambulatory things that came through our front doors historically, that by the way, we lose money on, we're gonna handle remotely. What are the first few things you do as you prepared for that? We have uh, one of our core values at eVisit is innovate, iterate, and automate. And automation is a beautiful thing. And here, as you know, Brett, I worked for uh, a number of years in the entertainment industry and ran an animation studio and a film distributor. At one point, this just demonstrates the, the virtue of automation to me. Uh, at one point, I was hiring an animator. And uh, in the interview, he, he told me about his experience at his previous employer was a game developer. He said, I came in, I learned the ropes in the first week. I found that I could build Photoshop automations to automatically build all the textures from the incoming assets. And I could just come in in the morning, click play on the Photoshop automations, and then go play video games for the next eight hours. And at the end of the day, I'd bundle the assets up and deliver them down the pipeline. I hired that guy. Clearly, he hadn't been well managed, but clearly he knew how to automate. He knew how to automate himself out of a job. That's exactly the approach in healthcare operations that I would take as well is start to look at how we could iterate people out of their jobs, not so we could lay them off, but so we could, we could move them uh, to the top of their training so that they can be doing that more and more advanced things and serving more and more patients, which ultimately will bring down the costs and increase the patient outcomes. So I would be looking for processes that are high touch, that require multiple providers, that require a lot of paperwork, and I would start to see how I can collect all that information, either begin to collect it either automatically through wearables and other telemetry devices and remote patient monitoring, uh, or even through self-reporting and through smart forms that, that run through machine learning modules to analyze and collate and call out uh, anomalies. And then uh, see how I could package all of that information up in the most efficient way and put it in front of providers so that they could make the most informed decisions possible. Those points that are time-consuming and that involve really significant human touch, those are the, the lowest hanging fruit, the best opportunities for automation and thus for reduction in cost. And I actually think now is, is, there's been a catalytic event that can accelerate that. It, in my experience watching healthcare over the last you know, 20 years or so, there are big events that ultimately create change, specifically in healthcare. I think in healthcare and education are two industries that that these big events push innovation. And I think we're in the middle of one right now. There's a revolution happening where the opportunity to accelerate the implementation of some of these technologies is key. And I think for leaders, 
in health systems, uh, you know, the boots on the ground, identifying that that catalyst is here, is happening, and to take advantage of the tailwinds that come along with that, it's a big deal. If you're a change agent in your organization, this is the time to, to make some of those massive changes uh, that ultimately will result in, again, helping to deliver on the triple aim and, and improve outcomes and reduce the cost of care and increase access. I think that's key. You know, that, and that's really a big reason why, why we started Changing Healthcare podcast is to highlight the examples of those and how the thought leaders in the industry are driving towards that. Well, good. With that, I want to move us on to a couple of brief new segments that we're introducing that uh, are designed to mix things up just a little bit and provide and pro provide some variety to our listening audience. Uh, the first of those is what we're reading. So, uh, Brett, what are you reading right now? Tell us about it. Yeah, so I, it's a, been about, I, I find that my, uh, the time I have to finish a book is, is less and less over the last 18 months with, yeah. with everything we've had to be working on, uh, or we've had the chance to work on. But uh, about a month ago, I picked up Phil Knight's, I guess you can call it a memoir, uh, Shoe Dog. So uh, Phil Knight, founder Nike. of Nike. Yeah, and it, it's really the, the story of him creating Nike, which was originally Blue Ribbon. And some of the challenges he had along the way. It's a fascinating read. He's he's a very gifted storyteller. And my wife, you know, turn over to me in the evening because I'm I'm laughing out loud at some of the things that that go on. And it's nice to hear about the different paths that that innovators take in their markets and realizing that it's never a, a simple linear experience that that everyone goes through different things that really test their metal. But it's it's been it's it's a great book. If you haven't had a chance to read it. I highly recommend picking it up. It reads like a story, but but really just kind of the, the whole history of, of what he built there at Nike. It's a great recommendation. What have you been spending time on lately? Yeah, I'm about three quarters of the way through a book called A First Rate Madness by Nasir Gaimi. Really how people come as packages and their behavioral tendencies uh, that uh, under many circumstances may be a liability. Under strain, they can actually be turned to uh, advantage. It looks at the lives of, uh, of many of our historical luminaries, including Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., many others, and diagnoses them as manic depressives, uh, hmm. predominantly with uh, bipolar disorder, and uh, lays out a very compelling case for how each one of these leaders would have been ineffective in a time of peace, but in a time of war, it takes just the mental imbalance that they brought to the table to bring about the kind of change, and I say war more broadly, uh, when it comes to conflict and having to lead people through difficult times, there's also compelling evidence that, uh, that those with bipolar disorder are, are also tend to be quite a bit more uh, empathetic. And that empathy tends to really drive a lot of their leadership style during times of conflict mm -hmm. as, uh, as well. It also dives into a phenomenon that I think is, is fascinating that they call heads I win, tails its chance which is all about how, how we all have an, have an illusion of control, especially when things are going well for us. That uh, whenever things are going well, then, then and that, that's owed to something we did. When things are going poorly, well, it was just bad luck. I think I've heard that in a few places. Um, huh. I need to get your reading list because it, it always tends to be far more interesting than my own. So. Well, no, I mean, shoe dog, shoe dog's right up there. <laughs> Anything else that you've noticed in the world that you've seen in the news that you're watching on TV? Honestly, it's just, it's hot. I'm recording from visiting some family in Southern Utah and I thought it was hot in Phoenix and it is, you know, 100 and 
112, 116 on any given day during the summer. How boring is this? We're talking about weather. It's kind of cliche, but it's supposed to be 130 <laughs> degrees in Death Valley, California this yeah. next week. And, and so we're just trying to, you're just trying to keep cool. Just weather it. Yeah. 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 Anything, anything on your radar that you've seen or, or it's piqued your interest? Yeah, you know, I'm always looking for things to watch with my kids. I've got uh, I've got a boy, 14, and two girls, 12 and 10. And there's a, a new series on Disney Plus called The Mysterious Benedict Society. It's based on the books by Trenton Lee Stewart, and stars Tony Hale as both the protagonist and the antagonist. He plays both parts. <laughs> uh, you may remember him as Buster from Arrested Development, yeah. and uh, he gets to really show his breadth in this role. It's got it's a show with a really uh, charming aesthetic and the writing is witty. It's uh, smart enough for, for adults, but uh, also at a level where kids can really appreciate it. Kind of along the lines of the Netflix production of Lemony Snicket, but uh, mm -hmm. not nearly as dark. So we're enjoying that. I'll take a look at it. My kids probably enjoy it as well. And with that, that's all the time we're giving this episode. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Until next time. Thanks, Miles.